I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast. Uh, with us today is Lihi bin Chitrit. She is a professor at uh, the University of Georgia, and uh, she's recently published a book with Princeton University Press. It's called Righteous Transgressions, Women's Activism on the Israeli and Palestinian Religious Right. Uh, Lihi, uh, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So this is just an absolutely fascinating book uh, where you did this incredible research with these women's movements on both the Israeli and the Palestinian side, and uh, it's really quite innovative. Could you tell us a little bit about why you wrote the book, what you were trying to achieve? Um, yes, that's, that's a great question. So, um, so the book is a comparative study of women's activism in four movements. So it says Israeli and Palestinian religious right, but it's specifically uh, four groups, um, the Jewish settlers in the West Bank, the ultra-Orthodox Shas movement, the Islamic movement in Israel that's divided into two branches, the northern and the southern one, and the Palestinian Hamas. And for me, what motivated me to do this research is the fact that you can still pick up a book on any of these movements and not find any women mentioned, you know, n not by name or not even the subject, the category of women, as if women are not important to the politics of these movements. Um, and for me, that was a glaring, glaring gap because we know women support these movements. We know that women are active in these movements. And still, a lot of the research that's done on them um, doesn't consider women to be important politically. Uh, so for me, that was one of the kind of the main motivation. And I think there's an increasing interest in women's activism in conservative religious movements. Uh, but I think a lot of the research that's coming out on, on, on this subject is asking the question, why do women support conservative movements, right? Why, why do women support conservative religious movements that seem to go against their own interests in terms of their agenda? Um, and I had a problem with the question of why do women support these movements, this surprise that women would be um, drawn to these agendas because, I mean, as, as Saba Mahmoud kind of showed us, uh, this reflects a, a sort of a feminist bias, right? We assume that women should be naturally feminist, and that's not surprising when women become feminists, but when women support conservative religious movements, we're so puzzled by it. Um, so uh, that was another kind of corrective that I wanted to add to this conversation instead of looking at why women support these movements to look at how they support these movements. So what are the contours of their activism and how they shape um, what they're able to do in these movements. Um, so really giving us an account of women's experiences political experiences in these movements instead of constantly questioning their choices. And one thing which is really interesting in the book is your discussion of your own often discomfort mm -hmm. in uh, really trying to understand these women on their own terms. Right. And, um, and so tell us about the research experience as, you, as you're sitting down with women in these conservative settler movements or in the Islamic movement um, and, and how that was as a researcher trying to engage with people. Well, there are several um, factors in terms of my identity that plays into that. First, as a feminist, I was kind of hoping to find secret feminists. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was hoping, and then that's why I focus on transgressions, on, on moments when the women, their actions don't correspond to what they teach or what their movements teach women should do. So I was hoping to find these, these moments of resistance. And I think what was difficult for me was actually, when talking to these women, women, seeing that it's not about resistance, right, and how they use this mechanism of frames of exception um, to make this transgression righteous and be not about resistance but actually promoting their movement's um, nationalist ideology, which is, again, 
in a different aspect of identity is something that I'm also worried about, right? Mm -hmm. um, as someone who's pro-peace and someone who's, who's looking for, you know, dialogue, um, I didn't have any, um, any kind of ideological or political connection um, to these women, but I think what was so fascinating and what I wanted to study them was because it's easy to study the people that we agree with, right? It would be so easy for me to study, you know, feminist peace activists, but the challenge is really to try to understand people that are so different from you and also find ways um, to continue a conversation with them or to start a conversation with them instead of saying, I don't want to hear it. They are my kind of political rivals and, 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 and finding ways to exclude them or silence them. Um, and then, on top of that, I am Israeli, I am Jewish, I don't hide that fact, it's pretty uh, apparent from my name, from my accent, from the languages that I speak, so also convincing them that I'm not there on behalf of any kind of, you know, intelligence organization, I'm not working for the Israeli Shin Bed, uh, I'm not collecting intelligence, um, and, and that was another kind of hurdle to, to overcome, but I think... Um, I ended up having incredible access with three of these movements because when people saw the questions that I'm asking and kind of saw that I'm focusing on women, often it was like, oh, this is not that political, right? Clearly she's not gathering intelligence. Um, and I think one thing that I found out is that women in this movement think that they're not recognized enough in terms of the general public, right? So the media and academia don't cover and don't recognize their contributions. Their own movements recognize their contributions. The wider kind of public doesn't, um, so they wanted also to to um, kind of convey their message. Um, and, and, and at the end of kind of, 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 of the process, I had so much access and so much um, you know, great support by women who really supported what, what I was doing and were, were happy with that. Now, Let's unpack that a little bit. And just so now, you use two terms mm -hmm. that are really central to the book, mm -hmm. um, but I think need to be explained a little bit. This idea of frames of exception mm -hmm. and this notion of transgression, mm -hmm. which I think are major theoretical contributions mm -hmm. to understanding how these women fit into their movements. Mm -hmm. So explain those terms and the, the leverage that you're getting out of that. Okay, so first the question, the question that I'm asking is, how do women in you know, very conservative religious movements with very clear ideas about women and men's different public and private um, roles, how are they able to participate and take part in forms of activism that seems to seem to transgress or go beyond, you know, what their movements say that they should do? And why do we see the va a variation? Why do we see that in some movements, women's activism really adheres to the very conservative ideology of their movements? And in other movements, women totally transgress and go beyond um, and, and, and participate in much more expansive forms of activism. You have these yeah. great anecdotes yeah. Yeah. of these demure, tiny little women <laughs> exactly. suddenly becoming screaming exactly. dervishes exactly. At, at, at protests. Exactly, and, it, and it, it, it goes against what they themselves teach in, in classes, in mosques and classes and classes synagogues about how women should uh, behave, how they should you know, um, hold themselves in public. Um, and, but, and, and it happens in some movements and not in others, right? And I wanted to explain this variation. And the case selection really gives me leverage over that because um, I have a variation in the ideological kind of um, commitments of different groups. So some of my groups are really focused on proselytizing. And by proselytizing, I don't mean converting people from one religion to another, but making um, individuals 
co-religionist, more religious, making public sphere social arrangements more religious, state institution more religious, and other movements are also proselytizing, but they have an additional kind of ideological component, and that's that they're committed to a nationalist struggle against kind of an external um, rival, and they prioritize the nationalist struggle over their commitment to proselytization. Um, and what I show is that women in the nationalist movements are able to use this nationalist component of their ideology to frame transgressions as righteous, to say, for the sake of the nationalist struggle, we have to maybe temporarily suspend some restrictions of women and engage in this kind of activism that's completely inappropriate, but is necessary for, for, that, for the struggle that we are in. Um, and in the in the kind of the, the the proselytizing movements, women don't have this ideological tool that they can use to construct um, this exceptional temporality of threat and and justify transgression. So we see that their activism is more circumscribed in those movements. So, so give us some examples of that first type of activism, yeah. the one the nationalist movements right. where you see women being able to transgress yeah. in this kind of politically motivated way. So I think it's important to uh, first kind of outline the categories that I use for types of activism. So I divide what women do in these movements into three categories. The first is what I call complementarian activism, and this, this is the kind of activism that fits the gender ideology mm -hmm. of the movement. So um, um, opting for motherhood, homemaking, embodying, uh, you know, uh, piety through modest dress, modest behavior, proselytizing among women, and participating in social services activities as part of this uh, women's caregiving roles, like an extension mm -hmm. of women's caregiving roles, and that's something that happens in all. So that's not transgressive all. at all. So that's not transgressive. That really embodies um, the teachings of their movements. The second type of activism is what I call public protest, and this means participating in unruly demonstrations, um, kind of um, serious conflicts, uh, protests, mass mobilization, and even confrontations with, uh, you know, the military, the police, and sometimes even militant acts. Um, and these are activities that start to blur role difference and ideas about sex segregation and even female modesty. And we see that happening um, in the settler movement. We see that happening in the northern branch of the Islamic movement with their uh, campaign to defend the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem from Jewish encroachment. Uh, and we see that with Hamas, of course. We don't see that, that kind of um, protest by women in Shas and kind of the southern branch of the Islamic movement. And it's not like those movements don't organize protests. They organize protests on things that have to do with religion and state. So the roles of the courts and, and public morality, public modesty. So they also have protests, but women don't participate in those protests. Um, and the third type of activism is what I call formal representation. So in some movements, women actually um, elected to parliament or local council, local council members on behalf of parties or lists affiliated with their movements. And we also see a correspondence between um, the nationalist movements and greater uh, area, greater kind of spaces for women's formal representation in these movements. Uh, it seems like one of the first decisions that you made, and probably one of the most controversial, is the idea of comparing the, the Jewish movements with the Islamic mm -hmm. movements and identifying uh, the kind of a common, you know, something that makes them comparable right. cases right. and using these conservative gender norms as, as, as the basis of that comparison. And I'm curious if you could tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about that decision and right. how you think that shaped uh, the way the book unfolded. Absolutely. That is the thing I get the most in trouble for. <laughs> Everybody is unhappy with this comparison. So on the settler side, um, actually there was a, a review of the book in, in a settler 
um, newspaper and the reviewer said, I didn't read this book, <laughs> but the fact that she even dares to compare, you know, pious, righteous settler women with terrorist women in, in this Islamist movement makes this, you know, all project completely unworthy. And he actually says that if book burning was, <laughs> was yeah, kind of like an acceptable, acceptable cultural uh, practice, this would be his candidate for the flame. I hope they so buy a lot really, of copies. Well, exactly. I hope that helps to buy copies. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they were upset, and there are people that are upset from the other side, right? How are you comparing people that are women that are in completely marginalized, oppressed, disenfranchised positions like Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians under occupation and settlers, right? That they're so connected to the Israeli state and Israeli mm -hmm. power. And I think people are upset because there is a misunderstanding of what the purpose of comparison here. And it's a, and in, in the case selection, that the reason I chose these cases is actually to control for alternative explanations, for variation in, 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 in types of women's activism in these movements. Because we have a whole literature on women's political participation and representation that gives us a lot of ideas of why we would see variation in women's political participation. But I argue that these, argue, that these explanations um, are, are you know dissatisfactory when we when we talk about my cases and it's really about this nationalist versus proselytizing issue. So what I'm doing is I'm choosing these groups to control for these other explanations. So I'll just give you one example. I'm using the northern and southern branches of the Islamic movement as a natural experiment, right? The the movements and the women in them um, are almost completely identical to each other, and the only difference that we have between these movements is they're split along the nationalist and, 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 and proselytizing um, kind of ideology, ideological axis, and we see the, a variation, mm -hmm. corresponding variation in women's activism. When we take the settler movement and the northern branch of the Islamic movement in Israel, we have a most different case selection, right? So I'm not saying that they're comparable. I'm not saying that they're the same. I'm saying the opposite. They're completely different from each other in all you know, all relevant aspects we can think of except for one thing, that they both prioritized uh, this nationalist struggle over proselytizing, and then we see similar patterns of women's activism in the two of them, right? So it's really about case selection, um, and I'm trying to avoid the politics. I'm not saying that they're comparable. They're not compar comparable at all. No, and, and that's really interesting as a way of getting leverage on, mm -hmm. on, on these questions. Uh, let me ask you about the comparison then, which... With, you know, kind of the within on the Jewish side right. yeah. when you're looking at Shas versus the settler right. movement because yeah. it's really quite interesting right. where you might have expected to see more similarity exactly. and yet you don't. So why do you think that is then? Exactly. So, and, th and then that's another thing that I think it's really important. There's a reason why I'm choosing Muslim and Jewish groups and comparing within case differences because I think there's so much focus on Islam and gender, right? Um, and there's almost this Muslim exceptionalism in Islam being kind of given to conservative gender politics. And that's not the case, right? Gender inegalitarianism, it's not a Muslim problem, it's a, it's a religious problem, it's a universal problem, it's not even a, a religious problem. So having those Jewish cases, I think, kind of help us, um, you know, avoid this, this inadvertent Islamic exceptionalism that we have. Um, and then showing that really, you know, some people would expect intuitively that in the Jewish movements, women in general would have more, you know, freedom and more spaces to uh, participate in the kind of activism I'm talking about. But we see this in, within case variation, right? And it's not about being Jewish or being Muslim, and it's not about being affiliated with the state or being um, not affiliated with the state. It's about the, the prioritization of 
different ideological components in these different movements. So for a group like Shas, mm. you do see them engaged in the complementary types of activism, right. but not in the public. Exactly, not in public protests and not in formal representation. So women are not represented in Shas, not on local levels list and not on, on the parliamentary level, and they don't participate in Shas demonstrations. When Shas have protests, when they have demonstrations, women don't participate. But that doesn't mean that women are important for Shas, and I think... One of the things I'm trying to show in the book is that this thing that I call complementarian activism, sort of the boring part, is so important for the movements and also for the women themselves. And that's where they locate their major contribution to the movements. And that's where the movements emphasize their major contribution to the movements. So women are important in Shas, even if they don't participate in these more transgressive uh, and more expansive forms of activism. And so when you spoke to, uh, to Shas women mm-hmm. activists, yeah. That's what they would say. They would they would highlight the importance of their contributions rather than being defensive about what they were not doing. Absolutely, absolutely, and and even you know in the movements where women participated in 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 protests and this more transgressive um, activism, it was important for them to to stress for me that they're not happy about the fact that they have to do these things, that they don't want to do these things. It's not some kind of achievement. It's not, again, it's not kind of a feminist um, accomplishment. Um, it's something that they're forced to do because of the you know, situation of conflict and struggle and ex- uh, exceptional temporality and threat. And they say that they would prefer not to participate in these in this kind of activities, um, but they don't have a choice, so temporarily they have to. So it wasn't something that they were valorizing in the sense of, of some kind of an important fem- feminine contribution. They're saying we have to do it, so we do it. So on that note, let's go back to the beginning. You said you went into the book looking for mm-hmm. hidden feminism, right. and then you kind of suggested that you didn't find it. Right. So what did you find then well, in, term- yeah. in terms of how they understood the, their own gender norms in mm-hmm. terms of these political movements. So I think um, the fact that they're not feminist doesn't mean that they don't recognize that women are important political actors and that women are important and essential to these movements. But I think the stress for them, and in all of these movements it was it was pretty a similar discourse, it's about complementarian, complementary roles. It's not about equality, it's not about an interchange I can do anything that the men can do. There shouldn't be any difference between us. There are differences, and it makes society stronger and it makes the movement stronger when, when, where it, when each um, side or each gender focuses on their God-given uh, role um, and they're most effective in it and they have a comparative advantage in it, and that's what they should focus on. So it's not that women um, are doing something less or it's not that there's a hierarchy, right? That what the men are doing is more important, what the women are doing is less important. It's the opposite. They're saying what women are doing in the home and raising children um, and proselytizing and engaging in social services. This is reforming society, right? This is where the real work happens, not, you know, on the on the big stage of, of, of politics. It's behind the scene. Um, and, and one person in the, in the settler movement gave me the example of saying, you know, um, the men are the car and the women are the gas, or men are the head and the women are the neck, you know, um, the idea that women are very powerful, but in a very feminine way, and they shouldn't try to um, covet the roles that were assigned to men. But you found very little evidence for gender solidarity across the Jewish-Muslim divide or the Israeli-Palestinian divide. Yes, and that's, you know, that is what I'm hoping would come out from the book. I hope that 
my interlocutors, the people I worked with, would actually read the book and maybe find that they have so much in common with, with you know, women in, in, in these other movements that would start to recognize them potentially as partners. Although the feminist, <laughs> I might not want them all to come together and, you know, commonly, uh, you know, advance their agenda, but, but maybe this, this could be um, kind of a first step towards seeing the other as, as someone who has something in common with you. All right, we've been speaking with Lehi Ben-Shatrit, uh, University of Georgia, about her new book, Righteous Transgressions, Women's Activism on the Israeli and Palestinian Religious Right. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.